morning. Good to see all of you. Now today I'm going to take a leave from Pastor Jenny's uh, approach last week. I won't be doing my usual expository teaching and preaching. Instead, I will take time uh, to share our church's journey in the area of worship. But first uh, of all, let me thank God and really our PPRIC, our so-called HR committee of the church, for the opportunity and the generosity to send me for a pastor's uh, development trip to London, the UK. And part of the time was spent on the Methodist uh, Heritage Tour. Part of it spent visiting various churches. Part of it was attending the Alpha Leadership Conference, uh, which was hosted by Holy Trinity Brompton, the church we started the Alpha course. And rest of it spent renewing ties with some of our worshippers and members over there, and also some fellow track pastors. You can see from the picture, our track president, he was leading the trip as well. And so I'll share lessons from this trip, both this week as well as the next. So this Sunday, as the worship leader, Christine, has mentioned, we celebrate Aldersgate Sunday. And the person we usually remember is John Wesley, how his heart was strangely warm. For those of you who do not know these words, strangely warm, were the exact words used by him in his journal when he encountered the Lord. He had a fresh touch from God, but for him, his heart was strangely warm. That was uh, his personal encounter. But what surprised me on this London trip really was how God put the spotlight on Charles Wesley. Instead of John Wesley, I expected to learn more about John Wesley, but God put the spotlight on Charles Wesley for me instead. I have a picture here of Charles Wesley and also his grave, where his body was laid as well. And so Charles Wesley, unlike his brother, John Wesley, is plumber. And the reason is this, John Wesley really traveled, braved the weather, moved around preaching like crazy, lived very frugally. Charles Wesley was a more family man. So John Wesley had a terrible family life. Charles Wesley, on the other hand, had a good family life. And of course, you can see his prosperity as well. Now, most people only remember what happened on 24th of May, 1738. And that is John Wesley's strangely warm encounter. What most people do not remember and do not know is actually what took place three days earlier, 21st of May, 1738. This exact day, 285 years ago. And this is the account of Charles Wesley. Early in the year, 1738, Charles Wesley was severely stricken with a lung disease. His doctor expected him to die. But a Moravian Christian named Peter Bowler prayed for his recovery. Peter Bowler asked him if he hoped to be safe. And Charles Wesley replied, yes. And then Peter Bowler asked him, for what reason do you expect, do you hope for it? Charles replied that he had done his best to serve God. After all, he was a priest, already ordained, serving God. Peter Bowler shook his head and said nothing, which John, uh, Charles Wesley took as uncharitable of him at first. So essentially, Peter Bowler was telling Charles Wesley that all his good works counted for nothing. Wow. However, credit to Charles Wesley, he began to examine the Moravian teaching of salvation by faith alone, including reading the testimony of a Presbyterian who had experienced an instantaneous conversion, a real encounter with God. While Charles was ill, he was kept for in the home of a deeply devout Moravian named Thomas Bray. Thomas Bray often read the Bible to Charles Wesley because Charles was so sick. And through it, Wesley gained the assurance that God was indeed going to fulfill his promises to him. However, on that 17th of May that year, he was still sick in bed. He managed to read Luther's commentary on Galatians. He wasn't completely well. But on that day, he saw that justification was by faith alone. So even though he didn't have the assurance of salvation yet, not so clear about his own salvation, he began to teach this, to press this truth upon his friends and acquaintances who visited him. 
On the 19th of May, a Mrs. Turner, this lady came who had experienced such a conversion. She came and they spoke to him saying that, you, Charles, you will not rise from your bed unless you believe. Whoa. <laughs> Very strong words. Imagine you were Charles Wesley hearing these words. You will not rise until you believe. Whoa. How will you react? I mean, this is an ordained priest, you know. <laughs> Credit to Charles Wesley. He didn't take offense. She, he merely heard of her, convert, her convicting experience, how she was so convicted of her own experience that he began to feel real hope. Two days later, on 21st of May, 1738, which was incidentally Pentecost Sunday that year, Wesley awoke, Charles Wesley awoke, somehow believing that this is the day that Christ would deliver him. His brother John and his friends came, they sang a hymn, and when they left, Charles Wesley began to pray, reminding Christ of his promise to send a comforter. He looked only to Christ alone. That was Those were the words in his journal. As he laid back to the bed to rest, he heard a voice saying, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise and believe, and thou shalt be healed of all thine infirmities. So he heard these words on the 21st of May. It wasn't the voice of God, it was the voice of Mrs. Turner. <laughs> but Mrs. Turner felt convicted that she had to say these words, led by the Spirit, she had to declare these words to Charles Wesley. Of course, Charles was initially shocked to hear that, but to cut the long story short, in his journal, Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley credited this day as the day he was healed, and then subsequently he received the witness of the Holy Spirit. And so while on Honest Gate Sunday, most of us celebrate and remember John Wesley's heart strangely warm experience, I must add that Charles Wesley's experience is equally, if not more significant. If Charles did not have his own testimony, his brother John probably would not have pressed in as much for his own encounter with the Lord. And so together, God was being gracious to the Charles Wesley and John Wesley brothers, and they may be said to contribute the following to the global body of Christ. Since it's Aldous Gate Sunday, I better remind us of some Methodist distinctives, alright? Like the other reformers, the Wesley brothers preach salvation or justification by faith alone. That is, you cannot be saved by attending church or by doing good works. Rather, because we are saved, we attend church as an anchor of our worship and thanksgiving to God. In those days, you know, there's no division between the church and the state. If you're born in, the, in England, you belong to the church of England. How do you know you are born? You go through infant baptism. So everyone was so-called Christian. But the Wesleys understood that just because you are baptized doesn't mean you are truly a Christian. You need to have your own personal salvation, personal decision to follow Jesus. So they preached justification by faith. Well, they took a step further than the Reformers by following the Moravians. They emphasized you needed a personal assurance of salvation. It is not enough just to know in your head. You need to experience the personal assurance of salvation. It's a direct act of God's Spirit working in your hearts. So what is the personal assurance of salvation? Essentially, it's to know within your heart, without a shadow of doubt, that your sins are forgiven. You are loved by God and you are a beloved child of God. That is what a personal assurance of salvation looks like. And so Order Skate Sunday really is a powerful reminder of this reality that all of us must pursue. If you don't yet have the assurance of salvation for yourself, ask God. Ask God for it. And God is gracious. He was gracious to the Wesleys and to many Methodists. He will continue to be gracious to us as his children. If you like it, ask the Lord for a personal encounter with him. 
Second, unlike the reformers, they took a step even further by teaching about sanctification, which really means just growing in holiness to become more and more like God who is holy and different. They taught that this holiness can be gained both gradually and instantly. For the gradual process, they emphasize daily or weekly spiritual disciplines, things that we are probably familiar with, including attending worship services, but as well as class meetings, our cell groups, where they kept each other accountable to continue to grow in Christian holiness. For the instant work of God, the Wesley's taught on Christian perfection. So we're so filled by God's love, you don't even want to continue sinning. It doesn't mean that they are sinless, but it does mean that we encounter God's feeling of the Holy Spirit so much of God's love poured into us that we just want to love God and love our neighbors, which really is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. This is what Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God's promise to all of us, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep all my laws. So that's what all this gate, that Christian perfection really is like. God's spirit filling us, changing our hearts anew. So to summarize, this is what the Methodist movement was like. While John and Charles and John Wesley, while John Wesley and his preachers proclaimed really the Methodist message through preaching, Charles Wesley was the one who carried the Methodist message through the hymns that he penned. Scholars estimate conservatively, he wrote at least 6,000 hymns. If you're generous, 8,000 hymns. These are the hymns that he penned in those days. And of course, we mustn't forget the Methodist people themselves who carried the Methodist flame through their testimonies. One of the reasons why the class meeting was growing was because each of them was testifying to their own personal assurance of salvation. God was changing them, transforming them, and so the fire spread, both in Britain, but all the more in the US. And of course, it is God's Spirit who really carried the Wesley brothers and the Methodists. Now, looking back at my trip in London, I'm amazed really at how God put the spotlight on Charles Wesley way before I even knew it. Somehow he knew maybe I need to speak about worship today. And in many ways, Charles Wesley can be synonymous, you know, to be said to be synonymous with Methodist worship. As I mentioned earlier, he wrote so many hymns. And later on, we will sing one of his most famous hymns, Love Divine or Love's Excelling as our song of response. It's a hymn that speaks of God's unfathomable love for us and how his love will bring us to Christian perfection. I want to read for us now Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses... uh, 14 to 21. For this reason, I knew before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. See, his spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I'm not going to exegete this text today, but I believe that Charles Wesley him 
perfectly exegetes this text through the hymn. Love divine, all loves excelling. In the interest of time, I'll just share two stanzas. Love divine, all loves excelling. That is God's divine love, right? The best love of all. The perfect love. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling. All thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, you are full of compassion. Pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with your salvation. Enter every trembling heart. That personal salvation. Assurance of salvation. Every trembling heart, every heart that fears you, God, enter, visit us with your salvation. Verse 2, similar to the hymn, uh, song we sang earlier, maybe, you know, uh, the contemporary version by the Gettys, the worship team led that song earlier. Breathe, O breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let all us all in thee inherit. Let us find the promised rest. Take away the bent to sinning or the love of sinning. See the new heart. The Ezekiel prophesied, 36, chapter 36, Alpha and Omega be that's who God is. End of faith as its beginning sets our hearts at liberty. When God's love so fills our hearts, we no longer want to sin. The bent to sinning as well as the love of sinning is removed from us. I will speak more about the need for the Holy Spirit in our lives uh, next week on Pentecost Sunday, which also happens to be our baptism and uh, confirmation and reception into membership Sunday. Now, talking about hymns and worship, I want to take some time this morning to explain to all of us here, really at Amago Methodist Church, our journey in terms of our corporate worship service. How do we go into this journey of the common order of service or worship? Before the pandemic, as many of you know, we had four worship services. We had the 8 o'clock traditional, the 10.30 contemporary, where you are now, uh, but the simulcast also at Amago Hub, as well as the 5 p.m. traditional. When COVID-19 struck, everybody was caught off guard. And back in that year, 2020, if you remember, we had very little information about this virus, right? Everybody panicked, and from the government's point of view, we were all unvaccinated, and slowly, slowly, they started with street gatherings and eventually called for a circuit breaker. Remember? <laughs> circuit breaker. And so you remember also that uh, the weeks and months leading up to the circuit breaker, the government started imposing limits on public gatherings, including worship services. Naturally, our church was impacted as well, and due to the rapidly evolving situation, the pastor's office took over the worship services completely. Even after the circuit breaker, the government kept public gatherings very controlled for a long time. Maybe nowadays we forgot, huh? but it was controlled for a long time. At one stage, worship services were either fully recorded, because we were just not allowed to have so many of us gather, or kept to 50 packs. Remember those days? We only had 50 packs allowed in church. And then... 30 minutes was the time limit you know, that we set for ourselves. And remember, I always remember the government will make the announcement very nicely on Friday so that we can have the time one day to respond or to re react on Sunday. <laughs> but jokes aside, but really, it was due to this you know, rapidly changing circumstances and lack of resources because large groups like the whole music team here, that was not possible. At a certain period in time, we didn't, were not allowed to have such big worship teams. And so we developed this common order of service or worship. I call it common because we no longer differentiated between traditional and contemporary, but we have one common experience, one family experience. Of course, we all hope that the pandemic will end sooner rather than later, but as it turned out, it lasted two years, around, around two years. Now, through that time, it dawned upon us, the pastors, that perhaps God was allowing this pandemic to happen for the church to reset to rethink for ourselves what it means to worship, 
what it means to be church. And the value of this common order of service became more and more apparent to us as pastors and leaders. And so today I want to take some time to share the reasons why we have kept to this common order of service, even though the uh, pandemic is over and we are now in the endemic stage, we learn to live with the virus. Now, first of all, I want to apologize that this explanation didn't come earlier. Maybe you could explain it last year, but better late than never. And in the past few months, let you know, we started conversations and dialogue with the leaders at every level, the church executive committee, but also the zone leaders and then the cell leaders and also the worship and music ministry. And so I've incorporated all their inputs into what I'm sharing with you this morning. Now, many of us feel, we acknowledge that, and I acknowledge that as well, that we feel a sense of displacement and grief. Instead of all hymns or all contemporary songs, suddenly you have a mixture of both. And we are all creatures of our own generation, whether we like it or not, that's the reality. We all have our own heart songs. Songs that straight away you hear, oh, I can worship. Right? Whether it's a hymn or a contemporary song, we all have our own heart song. That's the reality. And so when we have a common order of service, it doesn't mean that we will have 50% hymns, 50% songs, you know, that two of each. No, that's not what it means. Really, it's the whole order and not just the song segment. But when you have a common order of service, one of the things is, that happens is that we actually now have a wider repertoire of songs and hymns. And so the result is that everyone will surely encounter a new song or a new hymn from time to time. Because you are being exposed to a larger quantity of hymns and songs. And actually, if you think about it, what we experience in church, in the English side of services, is actually only very Western and very narrow. We don't even have any Asian instruments, for example. And so our worship, even though we have preferences for hymns or certain contemporary songs, is actually still quite narrow in some sense. But that's a conversation for another time. My point is that because of the new songs, surely all of us will feel disconnected a little bit from time to time. And so I'm grateful to all of you that you have you know, continued to worship coming alongside despite some discomfort. And I'm definitely also very grateful to the worship and music ministry, not just the team today, but many of the teams, all the teams, for stepping out of their comfort zone to pick up all these new hymns or songs. Now, if you put yourselves in their shoes, actually it's not that easy, right? Because if you are classically trained, it's not that easy to learn to flow. But if you are kind that flows, it's not, it's not easy to learn to read the musical scores. And so really, they have done a great job. Let's give them a round of applause. Give yourselves a round of applause as well for journeying alongside. And so now I'll present to you some reasons really for keeping to this common of order of service. Three of them are theological, pastoral reasons, and one of them is a practical reason. Now first, worship service is a lot more than musical style. We are supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. If you came early enough, in the pre-service look, we actually talk about John chapter 4, verse 23-24. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. It doesn't talk about musical style at all. It is a matter of the heart. Not the style of worship, but it's a matter of the heart. The expressions of worship can change, should change, and will change. But what cannot change is the matter of the heart. The posture we have whenever we come to worship. And so part of the intention behind keeping this common order of service is really to force us to re-examine our hearts whenever we worship. Is it God that we are truly worshipping, including making sacrifices? Or are we worshipping ourselves indirectly when we insist on our preferences? 
But I'm proud again to say that, you know, we learn to walk. We've got more and more closer by choosing, you know, to continue to worship despite our discomfort. Second, much more than experience, I need all of us to understand that worship and liturgy, especially from the pastor's point of view, is also meant to be educational. We typically think that the sermon portion is the only educational part, but that is not true at all. How we worship matters a lot. How we worship, the way we worship matters a lot. And that's why churches, for example, like the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, they have largely kept to a form of worship that they say was passed down from the early church 2,000 years ago. And especially the Orthodox Church, if you attend an Orthodox Church, they sing only one hymn, one tune, 20 stanzas. They stare mostly throughout the service, two hours. That's the traditional, most traditional form of worship. And so for them, if their sermon, 10, 15 minutes at the most. And they call it a homily. So for them, the worship, the liturgy is actually very educational. Of course, I think they can do better to explain what they are doing. But for us, in our common order of worship, if you examine it more closely, there are educational elements as well. I just want to highlight two. First of all, corporate prayer, which was formerly absent from our contemporary service. We never had this before, those of you who attended this service last time. But the corporate prayer is useful to teach us not to be so self-centered in our prayer life. So in the corporate prayer, besides praying for our needs, we pray for Singapore, other nations, famine, disasters. It teaches us to look beyond ourselves to the rest of the world, to pray for them, to love them more. And then secondly, the affirmation of faith teaches us that we stand together with other Christians across space, age, time, and culture. Even if our expressions of worship differ, we are united because of the truths we believe in. It teaches us humility. It also anchors us in truth. And truth is especially important now, especially for the younger ones in our midst. You swim in the culture of relativity. Nobody wants to say what is the true thing. I think it's important that the church continues to declare what is true and right. And so that's why these two are very educational elements we have incorporated into our common order of service. Many Protestants like us, we don't really appreciate liturgy. Wow, why so many things to go through, right? We generally try to uphold the primacy of God's word above traditions. And some even swing to the other extreme. They only emphasize preaching. doesn't matter about worship at all. It's all about the word of God. I hope we will not, as a church, go to the other extreme. We will learn to hold the tension, to realize that God has also worked through church history, church traditions, and we learn to be humble. We don't think that we are the best. We work together as the body of Christ globally. Now, having said that liturgy is educational, I also must say that it's important we realize that we must be willing to change as the Holy Spirit leads. As the wind of God blows, let us also move along. Otherwise, we might risk being completely irrelevant. I visited St. Paul's Cathedral when I was there in London. This church is very old now. It's a very majestic building. I took some pictures myself, but when I compared them to what's online, the online pictures are nicer. So, of course... I took the online pictures. Now, this church was about 30 years old when John Wesley visited on the morning of Aldersgate Gate Day, 24th of May, 1738. He recorded, he recorded in his journal, he visited St. Paul's Cathedral, Anglican Church. Right? And, they, and I went to visit this church on that day. Uh, it was the evening song time. It was more song and prayer. They had this excellent choir. But the people, the worshippers, 
We were merely spectators. Why? For a large part, the choir sang in Latin. No translation. Don't know what they're singing about. Yes, they're praising God wonderfully. But the rest of us, we are just spectating. We cannot participate in the worship. In addition, there was a huge gap, distance, literal distance between the choir and us. Imagine I was still outside the sanctuary and the choir was up here, two rows facing each other, worshipping God. <laughs> really hard to participate in worship. Sure, I think the church is still faithful in its worship to God, but to the rest of the world, unfortunately, it becomes like a spectacle. And a lot of people were queuing outside as tourists, going into the church just to see how beautiful the structure is. Is that the kind of church we want to be? I think it's quite important as well that to note that John Wesley did not encounter God at, at this St. Paul's Cathedral. It was in the evening when he went to Aldersgate Street in a society meeting where like-minded Christians were gathered to really worship God. It was at that evening that God encountered John Wesley. Now, John Wesley's story himself, he eventually built a chapel in London, which became his HQ during the months of winter, especially when it was cold, he would not go out preaching, especially when it's old, he would just be based there. Today, the tourist worshippers outnumber the locals, who are mostly elderly. Beautiful chapel on the left, as you can see, but the numbers are few. Mostly foreigners who are again tourists. Yes, Christians, but they're really just to see what's happening. In contrast, Holy Trinity Brompton, Anglican Church, using an old building, but they refurbish it, refurbish it, they installed lights, screen, sound system. And so when I entered it for the first time, I was a bit taken aback. Wow, all this stained glass. But in front of the stained glass, the screen, then got lights and everything. Whoa, a bit jarring. But nonetheless, it was vibrant. It was packed. It was full of people. It was alive. No doubt part of it is due to them honoring the Holy Spirit. After all, the Alpha Course has this Holy Spirit weekend. I think if you honor the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God always does something for the church. And so if you step into the Holy Trinity, Brompton, you might think to yourself from a certain angle, hey, so disrespectful. How can you do this to the building, the church of God? You know, how can you do this? Sacrilegious. But let me ask all of us. Do you want a beautiful house with no one living in it? Or do you want maybe a not perfect house, messy, but full of life, full of relationships, full of love? I think the answer is pretty obvious. And so as a church, we must, even as we uphold certain traditions, also at the same time be willing to go where the Spirit of God leads us. Third reason why we kept to the order of worship is that the church is meant to be intergenerational. Here at Amokyo Church, we call ourselves, you know, a Methodist family after God's heart. That's our vision. And just like our natural biological families, as the spiritual family, we need to learn to accommodate to each other's interests and preferences as a spiritual family. Just think of our own family gatherings. Does everyone get their way at a family gathering? No, right? You have to cook all kinds of dishes to cater to everyone. <laughs> Very troublesome. In some ways, in many ways, church is like that as well. We learn to set aside personal interests. We learn to enter each other's world, see from their point of view, and learn to embrace the common and larger good. A bit of a history lesson here about the contemporary service. 
If you do not know, years ago, actually, especially for the younger ones, Christian songs were a lot of them were based on scripture. Scripture songs written from taken from the words of scripture and we learn to sing it. For example, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God, right? So we used to sing those songs some decades ago. We wrote songs based on scripture. But the Holy Spirit came and renewed the church in the 70s and 80s. And so the contemporary service, so-called, actually was birthed as a charismatic renewal movement. The Holy Spirit came and new songs naturally were birthed because people fell in love with God afresh. They wrote new songs. Unfortunately, over time, the charismatic renewal became synonymous with the young because it was the younger people who carried it. became a subgenre of Christian music even. So much so that later on, many churches, in trying not to lose the young, started contemporary services. And our church did the same thing as well. We started the contemporary service really to be more in touch with the younger ones. But actually, if you understand the history, it was meant to be a charismatic song service, not so much the style. And while it may have been very well-intentioned, including our church, I believe eventually we also see that it may have created certain divisions and generational gaps in the church when various groups started having their own services. But this problem is not really just recent. In the late uh, 19th century, the Sunday school movement was birthed. At the time, of course, it included adults, but over the years evolved so that Sunday school was seen a lot by just as educating the children. With the young people being threatened, starting of contemporary services or youth services, what many churches now have is what we call the Mickey Mouse church model. The adult in the center, the children, and the youth. Mickey Mouse. Right? I mean, this is really in many churches, not just our church. But what happens is it always makes it difficult to transit from one to the next. And that's why along the way, there are people who fall out. And so each generation, I don't blame anyone. We are trying to do the best with whatever God has given to us. We try to steward. We think it's probably right at the time. We also understand each generation needs their own expression. But I hope we see that actually we need to integrate across generations. It's not easy to do so. And so we see some value that we learn to sing the hymns and songs of other generations, whether we're young or old or not. We all learn the songs that are not familiar to us. And that's what I'm hoping to build in us, empathy as well as unity, to learn to listen to a different song, genre, type, different from our generation, and yet remain united. And from God's point of view, this unity is really a testimony to the world that God is alive and at work within us. Not easy, of course, And we pray that God will help us in this journey to grow in empathy and unity as the family of God here. Fourth reason, the practical reason, as Singapore ages, and of course our church is not exempted as well, the pool of people available to serve at the traditional services has dwindled significantly. It was getting harder and harder to find people to serve. And so combining the worship and music ministries has helped to resolve this tension somewhat. It is not fully resolved. And we still want people you know, to continue to come forward to serve, but at least it has mitigated some of these concerns. And so these are the four reasons why we have kept to this common order of service. Uh, you know, better late than never, but I'm explaining to us these reasons now. Now, riding on on this common order of service, the pastors and leaders, we then agreed you know, to leverage on the global church's liturgical calendar. 
since we're already on a common order, why not accentuate how our worship services can better capture the mood of the different church seasons? In Singapore, we only have two seasons, hot season and rainy season. Or you can think durian season and non-durian season. But in the church calendar, actually there are many seasons. Let's have the picture up on the screen. It's an oversimplified diagram, I must say, but I think it's good for illustration purposes. The liturgical or church calendar actually begins in Advent, which is near Christmas. Not January, not in autumn like the US in fall, no. It's actually much later in the year. That's the start of the church calendar. Advent is the time of waiting, trusting in God, waiting for the Son of God to arrive, for us the second coming. And then later on, we have, of course, the famous stuff, Lent, Easter, Pentecost. And there's a long season of ordinary time. If the first part is about the story of God, the second part is about the story of God's people. And each of these seasons, actually, if we understand it better, has a certain mood that will help to carry that season. So Advent and Lent, more contemplative. Pentecost, for example, more celebrative. Easter, we celebrate as well. But there's the long time of just going through the motion and that's where we call the common time, ordinary time. So following this, if we understand this seasonal thing, it can also serve an educational purpose. I just give one example of faith, how faith may play out in these various seasons. For example, in the season of Lent, it's a season of discipline, self-denial. But it expresses faith because we believe that man does not live on bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we exercise faith as Singaporeans. We are so trained to pursue, to provide for ourselves. Lent teaches us to trust God, that he will provide for us through our fasting. We believe that God will provide for our needs. And for those of us who don't like structure, Lent season is a good time to train discipline. And we all need discipline in our Christian lives. Now let's go to the other side, which talks about Pentecost, for example. Pentecost is where we allow the Spirit of God to move, to blow, and in unknown new ways. That's the whole point, right? The Spirit of God blows wherever He wants, and we cannot know fully what He's doing. In the, first, in the season of Lent, if you are a spontaneous person, you probably won't like it. But in the season of Pentecost, you will love it because it's spontaneous. But the flip is side is true. If you are structured, you probably won't like the season of Pentecost. <laughs> wow, so much unknown. But this is a season to learn to trust God in the unknown. And God knows everything. Let's learn to walk by faith and not by sight. And then between these two ups and downs, we have the ordinary time. Going through the mundane and faith there is seen in patience. When you don't see anything happening, you've been praying for six months or six years, nothing happens, you continue to press on. And so in each season, if we learn to flow with it, it teaches us a certain dimension of faith that is needful for our Christian life. And so, just present to you, this is where we are in our journey for today. Let me now close with a testimony I heard at the Alpha Leadership Conference. And I pray that as we hear this testimony, we will see that our little inconveniences and so-called discomfort of our worship services really pales in light of what it means to worship this persecuted Christian's wholehearted devotion to God and to worship. So here's the testimony of a persecuted Christian lady in a country where Christians, if you are known to be a Christian, you can be sentenced to death. This is what it means to be a Christian in certain countries, even today. Right? We thank God, Singapore, we have this religious freedom, but we shouldn't take it for granted. 
So to cut a long story short, this Christian, she was captured and tortured severely. And she was in great pain. It's not the kind of humane torture, it's inhumane kind of torture. And after three days, she saw a vision of Jesus standing before her. And Jesus just reminded her of his suffering, that he took all our suffering and pain on the cross. By God's grace, her pain was supernaturally numb. The pain was taken away and God gave her the ability to endure the suffering. After she was sent back to the cell, not long afterwards, God told her this, evangelize. She was like, huh? (laughs) What? You want me to evangelize in this place with full of prison guards and I will be punished again if I'm caught or even killed? And God gave, I think, one of the best instructions ever. God spoke to her and said, use the toilet. It's the safest place. The safest place is the toilet. Why? Because the toilet was forever dirty and smelly. No one ever cleans the toilet and certainly no prison warden will ever walk into the toilet. And so one by one, she began to evangelize in the toilet. While she didn't share the specifics, I guess one of the reasons why no one betrayed her was that she learned to sacrifice her food even though they were all given a miserable cup of corn every day. Only one cup of corn per prisoner per day. And yet, out of this little, she learned to share. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why the other prisoners didn't, you know, uh, snitch on her, uh, bowto her, betray her. Her sacrificial love in the midst of her own painful suffering must have been an amazing testimony. After some time, by the grace of God, a small group of Christians were formed. And they wanted to gather to worship. But they couldn't do it in their cell. 30 of them squeezed into a cell for 10 people. <laughs> It will be obvious as well to the other prisoners that they were worshipping. So guess where they worship? Toilet. Very clever. Here we are sometimes quarreling, church building, kind of worship. But they all, they had 10 to 15 minutes each time in the toilet. It couldn't be long. The guards will get suspicious. They might get caught. And the lady shared how they will let those who weren't Christians, because there's always a queue, right? Those who weren't Christians, they let them jump queue so that they can just have their precious time of worship in the toilet. I pray for all of us this Orders Gate Sunday, we will come back to the heart of worship. Worship is a lot more than musical style. I pray that God will touch all our hearts in a very powerful, tangible way, just like the Wesley brothers experienced God, just like how this Christian lady lived out a life of worship unto God, even in very difficult circumstances. Even as I explain the reasons behind our common order of service, my desire really, my greater desire is that all of us will have the common experience that our hearts are set on fire for God. That really is what we should be aiming at this order's gate. Come, let us pray. Lord, I have spoken a lot this day. Holy Spirit, take the words planted deep in all our hearts. For those of you who do not yet have a personal assurance of salvation, ask God for it and don't give up asking. If God doesn't meet you today, keep pressing on. The Wesley brothers pressed on for a while before God encountered them, but ask for it. For those of us who need repentance, renewal of how we see worship, Ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. 
for those of us who need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit that we may live godly Christian lives, ask for it. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the work you have done through Wesley's, the Wesley's. But Lord, we are not satisfied with the past. Lord, we ask for a fresh outpouring of your Spirit on all of us today. Revive your church once again. Renew us that we may fearlessly declare your gospel, your truth, your love, wherever you send us. Meet us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.